the study of theology is the study of the word or the idea or the concept or the logic of God himself. Took me four years to read the Bible. I reckon I understand a great deal of it. Wasn't what I expected in some places. So I'm sad that we're not on the same page eschatologically. I wish Sam Storms and I were on the same page. So you believe in these kind of things? Let's just say I want to believe. Well, I know where he was converted. He was converted on the toilet. That, I, I like that one. We're you gonna would. To, you could say he was saying I was in the dumps, whatever. Just, well, which stall what? was he in? First John, second John, no, 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 third no, no, John. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let be careful here. He had bowel problems. He struggled with constipation. The argument among certain psychologists, he finally experienced relief with constipation. And in that moment of relief and deliverance, he suddenly... I wasn't getting that graphic. <laughs> he suddenly, you know, had this breakthrough discovery. And all of his fetid guilt, he released. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. Uh, we are together once again to discuss the... Reformation. Not all of us. No. Uh, oh yeah, Tim. Tim's not here. Uh, he was not here last time either. I forgot to acknowledge that. He Does that is... mean we were left behind? <laughs> Maybe. No. Tim is a quite a spiritual guy. No, we're, we're, so talk, we're talking about him. Kimberly, uh, not LaHaye. That's right. <laughs> it's a different Tim. Yes, that's true. So we are talking. We are without Tim, uh, who is missed. But we are continuing to talk about the Reformation, not specifically just the Reformation right now. Because of the year that it is, uh, 2017, 500th year of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther <coughs> nailing the 95 Thesis on the cat in, uh, castle door of Wittenberg. But um, we are going to be talking about the precursors. We have been talking about the precursors to the Reformation. And specifically, Sam, you brought up last time that uh, we want to talk about the spiritual condition of those, in, uh, just the everyday life yes. of someone in the Reformation. What does that look like and why does that uh, help the Reformation take off? Yeah, just as a kind of a preface to my response to that question, need to remember... Um, there were, we talked about a number of factors. We talked about political, economic, um, literary. We talked about the uh, significance of the uh, founding of the uh, printing by movable type in the early 1440s by Johann Gutenberg. Um, the corruption of the papacy was an issue that we really didn't talk about that much. But uh, Alexander VI, um, Julius, Leo, the, the three popes leading up to the uh, emergence of Luther all had um, really defiled the papal yeah. office. Um, uh, they were fathering children by multiple women. Um, the f they were doing whatever they could to raise money to, you know, to build St. Peter's Basilica, uh, which eventually, and we'll have to get into this in a future podcast, uh, which led to the sale of indulgences, which really uh, provoked mm -hmm. Luther. But I think, and I'm giving just my opinion here, as I've studied the Reformation over the years, I think it's impossible to understand why Luther did what he did and why people responded as they did without understanding a fundamental tenet of Roman Catholic theology, which I would simply call what they believe to be the double effect of sin. In Roman Catholic theology, sins are 
um, divided into mortal and venial. And the belief is that your guilt incurred that would put you in eternal jeopardy can be cleansed and forgiven uh, through faith in Christ, through observance of the sacraments, through um, uh, the various systems that the Roman Catholic Church has put in place. But there is a secondary effect of sin that makes you liable to endure temporal punishment. So in other words, um, you commit, uh, let's say you commit adultery and you uh, repent of it and the priest absolves you and pronounces you forgiven and you do all the things that are required. Um, So you will not be held eternally accountable, but in this life, you still must do penance. You must make reparations. You must render satisfaction for the lingering temporal effects of your transgression. And so the church would assign uh, countless things like you need to give a certain amount of money to the church. You need to go serve among the poor. Uh, You need to um, uh, perform um, acts of sacrifice and uh, all sorts of deeds that are designed to um, make satisfaction for the temporal punishment of your sin. Now, here's the key. The Catholic Church had, had created a system such that it was virtually impossible for anybody to die and leave this life without an outstanding debt of temporal punishment yet to pay, which is the foundation and the ground for the whole concept of purgatory. Oh, I still owe certain acts of satisfaction. I didn't do all of the acts of penance that was required. So now I go to this halfway house, Mm -hmm. so to speak, Mm -hmm. in purgatory. Now, my eternal salvation isn't in question, but I may have to spend hundreds, if not thousands of years suffering for the lingering debt of my of the temporal punishment of my sin. Got to get purged. That's right. I got to get purged. And <clears throat> here's the key. The people I left behind, like my sons and my daughters and my extended family members, they can do things on behalf of the Catholic Church that will then reduce the time I have to suffer in purgatory. So, for example, um, they would say, look, you need to understand your grandfather is suffering in the flames of purgatory. Why would you not make a contribution to the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome? You sound re- like the Reverend Tetzel right And now. reduce the time that is needed to spend there. So the whole point of this <clears throat> is that um, the Catholic Church had a system in place that kept mm-hmm. people perpetually indebted to the church, spiritually and as a result financially indebted. They were in a constant state of anxiety and uncertainty because they they never really knew how long they were going to have to suffer in purgatory. And um, even their eternal salvation was somewhat suspended upon the degree to which they were obedient and generous in their time and their offerings. And Luther comes along and says, no, listen, you need to understand that simple faith in Christ and the, and the, the finality of what he has done is all that is required to gain full, unconditional, unqualified acceptance in the presence of God. That message cut at the very root of the Roman Catholic system in the late medieval period. And I think it was, as as I can remember Stephen Osmond, who's written on uh, uh, the Reformation extensively, said the key element that made Luther's message um, not only palatable but appealing was aggrieved hearts, Mm -hmm. aggrieved hearts. People 
had no assurance of their salvation. They had no sense of any confidence that they were in right standing with God because of the elaborate nature of the Roman Catholic sacramental system. Luther comes along and says, your heart can be put at rest. You can have confident assurance that you're saved forever um, by simple faith in the finality of what Christ has done for you. Let me go back and revisit some of this as well, kind of going tiptoeing through what you just said as well, Sam, and starting with purgatory. Uh, one of the things that's in interesting about purgatory that most people don't know, if you're a Protestant, is that if you go to purgatory, you will guaranteed get to heaven at some point. Oh, yeah. Your right? salvation isn't in jeopardy once you get to purgatory. Yeah. Nobody now, goes, it's a long yeah. way down the road. <laughs> Nobody goes down. Yeah, there's no path up. down from purgatory. It'll always go up, but it's a long road. But uh -huh. having said that... That there was a, there was very much difference in modern understanding of purgatory. I'm talking mm -hmm. the last 30 years uh, uh, of Roman Catholic understanding and their advancements. Because remember, they can advance in their understanding of dogma. Mm -hmm. They can't under advance in their dogma, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a, um, a new understanding of pur purgatory where... Oh, you remember whenever it was, uh, you know, millions of years and, you know, long, long periods of time. Well, you do go to purgatory and you do have your sins purged. And yes, there's going to be a lot more for some people than others. But since, and this is the latest one that I had read in Roman Catholic theology, is that since, um, since it is timeless in purgatory, there's no time, there's no succession of moments it, it, your purging is instantaneous. So it was really interesting to well, me. Well, that's a new twist. I yeah. hadn't heard that one. Yeah, and here's what it they did. It doesn't sound so bad. Well, they compared it then to Protestant theology. They said now it's the exact same <laughs> because Protestants have to have a way for you to instantaneously purge all of your refuse, you know, the, the leftover bad sin that is all over you uh, because we're going to die sinners, you know, we're going to die corrupt uh, as far as uh, our flesh is concerned and we'll instantaneously be cleansed in right. heaven. Doctrine, so of glor happens, doctrine of glorification. Yeah, something happens between then or now and then that purges, <laughs> purges us of our sins. Instantaneous last rites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is important. This is an important distinction. I'm glad you brought it up between the contemporary Catholic mm -hmm. articulation of purgatory and the late medieval system. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the difference can be found in the distinction between two words, satisfaction and sanctification. In late medieval theology, uh, purgatory existed for the purpose of making satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You had to endure suffering. Uh, you had to... Um, uh, shed tears in order to satisfy, to make satisfaction for the guilt and the transgression of your sin. And so it was that notion that immediately, as you can see, threatens the question of the finality and sufficiency of the death of Christ. If he has made satisfaction mm -hmm. fully and finally yeah. for all sin, for all people, then what? in what sense can we make satisfaction yeah. in purgatory? And it was that element in late medieval Catholicism that Luther and others mm -hmm. latched onto and said, look, you're undermining the, the perfection, the sufficiency of the sufferings of Jesus. He made satisfaction. So when you hear about purgatory in today's mm -hmm. world, 
They say, no, it's not that you're making satisfaction. You are simply going through prolonged sanctification. Mm-hmm. As you said, Michael, you need to be purged of your sinful impulses, the, the residual effects of your flesh, your fallen flesh that led you to sin in this life need to be purged or eradicated. And it's not something that happens instantaneously in the, uh, the act of glorification, as Protestants believe, but it's something that is ongoing uh, whether over time or timeless. I hadn't heard the timeless doctrine before. That's yeah. a new one to me. But uh, typically Catholics would say, you know, this is a process that can take a considerable period of time. Yeah. Well, that yeah. puts a better spin on it. I mean, when you think about the way you describe it in the medieval version, you say, well, that doesn't sound like a very good selling point, you know, for your church. That sounds pretty, pretty bleak. But, of course, they weren't competing with anybody at the time. They sort of had it over all the yeah. people. And so in today's world, I can easily see how you would want to tweak that doctrine virtually out of existence, yeah. like this sounds like. Yeah. However, isn't there also the idea, though, that your focus now is on um, a righteousness of, of a lot of saints because if people want to know basically how bad purgatory could be, uh, we should bring in here in the weeks to come when we, when we do this the, the, the uh, text of the purported text, anyway, of the Tetzel sermons. Oh, yeah. And you get it, you know, but, uh. but you see how useful it would have been because what would a person, what's going to make you really reach in deep into your wallet like helping useful out your be, dearly departed? What? Exactly. Useful, it would have been Useful to raise funds Money. because yeah. those people are suffering. And we'll, we'll see that. We'll read the Tetzel sermon. This is infuriates Luther, but really, isn't there the other side of this where, uh, again, for the doctrinal, uh, for one thing that also irritates Luther, I think, is the focus isn't on righteousness of Christ, it's on the righteousness of all the saints, because all the great saints have stored up a lot of good merits, exactly. you know, and there's a big old, like, warehouse of it, a big treasury. <laughs> it's called the Treasury of Merit, where that's the next topic. Yeah. It's like leftover goodies, and you're such a rotten sinner, and your your old uncle so and so was mm-hmm. he wasn't like the great saints so they so they end in the in the black and all you fools end in the red how right. can I get how can I tap in and transfer some of their funds over that's how you do it exactly. with these indulgences right but that takes the focus off of the righteousness that you should be looking at right and it puts it on the saints righteousness yeah the treasury of merit is critically important it's this idea if people aren't familiar with it that Jesus for example had an excess of merit. I mean, he was obviously perfect. I would uh, think so. <laughs> uh, superfluous merit. Mary, again. So there, just kind of get it in your mind, this treasure chest, as it were. And in, in this incredible treasure chest are the meritorious deeds of Jesus and Mary and countless saints that have gone before who had far more righteousness than was even necessary for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And you can tap into that. Yeah, you can, uh, through uh, the payment of you know, a contribution to the church or through doing certain deeds or making sacrifices or whatever else it is, you can transfer some of the merits from that treasure chest onto your own account and thereby reduce your time in purgatory as well as reduce the time of your deceased relatives as well. Mm -hmm. So this doctrine of the double effect of sin, the notion of purgatory and the treasury of merits from which they could draw, all of this was a part of the system that was that was prevalent that just kept poking in Luther's side and just yeah. irritating him and driving him to the point. <clears throat> and, and by the way, it's interesting, as, as you guys know, in the 95 Theses, Luther does not deny the doctrine of, of purgatory or indulgences, 
What he denies and what he challenges is the horrific abuse of that to raise money for the church. It was the sale, the scandalous, um, just shameless appeal of Tetzel and others by which for a price we can uh, reduce the time of your relatives in purgatory. And then you go back to the idea of purgatory and you look at the treasury of merits and you say, this, this, uh, like you said, Sam, it is something that uh, if you have lived the life of a saint, then you don't have, you don't have to go to purgatory because you've done so much good in this life, but you're still doing good in this life. And so where do your extra excesses of righteousness go but to this treasury? And where can it go but to you? And who can distribute it but the church yeah. through the sacraments? The surplus. Yeah. And the you know, it's funny because we talked last time about authority. You think, think about what kind of authority you have if you have the keys to that chest i mean that's that's pretty weighty that you 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 have you have something on your fingertips there when you can say i can take this mystical right righteousness and and what i and how i allocate it will make a difference as to who suffers and who doesn't which is why i think we go back to something you mentioned uh, the challenging of the whole the whole authority the whole system of authority where even uh, even the Renaissance scholars are basically challenging this. What about like uh, I was thinking of who who was it? Lorenzo Valla, maybe one of these Renaissance humanist scholars who discovered that the donation of the so-called donation of Constantine mm-hmm. was itself a forgery and a fraud. Well, not only does that sort of make the church look bad just on its face, as they've been touting this, but but that that document is supposed to be one of the critical historical foundational pieces of information to tell. All the people, hey, don't worry. The church does have this authority. Yeah. Well, let's make, let's, just for our li- listeners, the donation of Constantine allegedly was the action on the part of the emperor Constantine back in the early part of the fourth century, in which he donated to the Roman cap to the church title to vast lands and properties and assets. And this was supposedly written down until. And again, here's why. Here's where the Renaissance comes in. The Renaissance scholars were always going back to the sources. They are developing new methods of literary and textual criticism. And Valla and others examined this document and said it is obviously forged that this wasn't written in the time uh, that Constantine lived. It was a it was a subsequent forgery. And suddenly, the supposed claim of the church to vast wealth and and uh, and holdings was undermined. Uh, because it was obvious that Constantine had done no such thing. And, you know, it was so funny because people might read in school some things that go to the point we were talking about, about the corruption in the church. If anybody in school had to read, for example, Chaucer, just look at the way he treats the clergy, uh, how he depicts them. I mean, they're buffoons, they're totally corrupt. And if anybody in school had to read, like, Thomas More... Or how about Erasmus, like in Praise of Folly? They all lampoon the church. They're all basically mocking mm-hmm. these guys for their uh, their behavior, their immoral behavior. It just shows that you know it's not it's not like Luther, as you said earlier, came out completely out of a vacuum, because scores of people all could see this. The doctrinal some people could see the doctrinal stuff more clearly. Some people, I think, could see the the corruption. 
they weren't all they weren't all uh, necessarily interested in the same things. I mean, Erasmus is more interested in the in the uh, reforming the corruptive stuff, so that when Luther gets too when Luther's doctrinal edge gets too hard for him, they finally fall out because at first Erasmus is real pro Luther, right? Mm-hmm. Seems like he's like, yeah, go go German monk, mm-hmm. stick it to him. Yeah. And by the way, let, let, this is important. Let's just add this because I, I don't want people to misunderstand us. Erasmus being one example, we're not saying that the totality of the Roman Catholic Church and spiritual life in late in the late medieval period was corrupt. There were good and godly priests. Mm-hmm. There were good and godly lay people who, um, who were caught up in the complexities of a system from which they mm-hmm. could not escape. But we're not saying that, that it was so pervasive that you couldn't find anyone um, who, um, who, who had good intentions and wanted to live in godliness. It's just that the system was so complex and it was interwoven with the state in such a way that, as we talked about in the last episode, political leaders uh, were terrified of the Roman Catholic papacy. I mean, if the political leaders got out of line, the Pope said, well, guess what? I am rescinding the authority of priests in your province from administering the sacraments. Well, then suddenly the people are in an uproar because, yeah. wait a minute, you just cut out oh, from yeah. under us yeah. our <laughs> access to God. We're and doomed. Our, <laughs> and our forgiveness and our hope. And so the people would put po- pressure back on the yeah. political leaders. Hey, look, make it good with the Pope. Restore the authority of our local parish priest to administer the sacraments in such a way that we can have some measure of peace in our hearts in terms of our relationship with the Lord. So it was a complex um, mixture at that particular mm-hmm. time. But I, I'm thinking as, as we look to perhaps the next episode, we need to be aware, we're kind of setting the stage here for Luther's action and why he did what he did. And it was Pope Leo X who came to the papacy in 1513. So four years before Luther uh, took his action, Pope Leo said, we're out of money. Uh, the, the Roman coffers were empty. We need to pay, we need to raise money to pay for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so he commissioned just the he authorized the, the indiscriminate sale of indulgences. Um, just for whatever price that you can obtain, I need as much cash in the coffers in Rome as possible. And he dispensed these priests and these other individuals throughout Italy and Europe to sell indulgences, to reduce the time in purgatory that your loved ones would have to suffer. And it was when one particular fella, Johann Tetzel, who gives used car salesmen a really bad name. The Benny Hinn of, of oh, the 15th Probably century. worse. Um, who found his way into Germany. He, By the way, it's interesting. He never crossed over into Luther's territory. Yeah. He stayed. He knew Luther's <laughs> reputation, so he stayed just on the outskirts. And uh, But Luther got word of some of the scandalous things that Tetzel was preaching, which we can get into later. We'll come with some juicy quotes from Tetzel's messages. Um, and perhaps the thing, I'll, I'll go ahead and give a little tip, uh, a little advance notice. Um, a particular individual who, uh, who was thoroughly inebriated crossed over into Luther's parish and bumped into Luther on the street. Now, whether or not this is true or apocryphal, mm-hmm. we don't know, but it, it illustrates the point. And Luther found him drunk on the street and uh, and challenged him, and he pulled out of his coat or his robe 
a document from Tetzel which said, well, I've already paid for the forgiveness of the sin of being drunk. And um, Luther was... he bought a plenary indulgence. Right, right, yeah, right yeah, a plenary yeah. indulgence that Free covered pass. all of his sins, past, <laughs> past, present, and future. And, um, and Luther was so scandalized, so offended by this, that he began to move and to take action, uh, and of which eventually led to the 95 Theses. Where's my pen? I'm going home to write some well, stuff. I'm coming full circle, Sam, where you started with the spiritual condition of the people. And, uh, you know, a full circle here is they, they lived in fear. They lived in uh, uncertainty. Right. Anxiety. But, Constant daily anxiety about their spiritual condition. And the, the uh, message of Luther came in and brought... Uh, not only, <laughs> I mean, it's nice one of these two come together, but not only good theology, but it really did bring some satisfaction to their souls. Right, it was pastoral care. Uh, and, and the significant thing about it that, that infuriated the Roman Catholic Church was that Luther said, you can gain this peace of mind, this assurance of salvation, this confidence independently of the Roman Catholic sacramental system. Mm. That grace that supposedly is only channeled through the seven sacraments um, is actually available to you immediately through faith in Christ. It comes directly from God himself. It doesn't have to be channeled through um, uh, the complexities of the Roman Catholic system. That was obviously uh, a, a serious blow to the, to the ability of the Roman Catholic Church to, to re retain its grip on the people and to keep them indebted uh, to that system. The just shall live by faith. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.